and welcome to more of a comment than a question. My name is Smriti Mehta and joining me is my friend and co-host Paul Connor. Uh, Paul, how are you? I'm well, Smriti. I had I made a delicious po'boy for lunch. It was like mm. the highlight of my day. And I've been dropping in on a <laughs> couple of SPSP posters and presentations today. Uh, but yeah, yeah. Nice. What do you think? Um, l- yeah, I mean... I, I like the remote conference. There's no, I don't feel really any pressure to attend anything and I can just, you know, take my <laughs> yeah. own time and maybe I'll hear about talks that I missed that were really good and I can go back to them later. Mm-hmm. So I, I actually think, yeah, the virtual conference thing's pretty cool. I mean, obviously we're missing out on the main point of a conference, which is to see a cool city and socialize with people right. and um, yeah. do a bit of networking. I guess uh, maybe you could still network. It's not quite the same, but... Yeah, I think it's right. it's cool, and it you know obviously saves a lot of carbon emissions and pollution and and stuff. Oh yeah, and and people's money. Yeah. I guess so. Yeah, they should just cancel in person conferences. <laughs> they should only do virtual conferences. Uh, I think that should be the right. Then then more so people scarred. can attend. I'm so scarred. Yeah, yeah, I went to SPSB last year. I I'm never. I don't think I'm ever going to any conference <sighs> ever again if I can help it. Yeah. It, <laughs> yeah, I did not. Not not for me. It might get better. I don't know. I wouldn't. Mm. I wouldn't give up. If, on they, it if, they're, if they're doing all of them learn, virtually, then yes. You should learn your own personal style for to... enjoying conferences. Uh, which, in fact, uh, let me just, just quickly not... introduce our guest. <laughs> right. Yes. Because he has his own philosophy on conferences that we just heard about. So today, we're talking to Professor Christopher Ferguson from Stetson University who is a professor of clinical psychology, studies um, media effects, violence and video games, um, things like that, and is also an author. Uh, recently mm-hmm. wrote a book called How Madness Shaped History, An Eccentric Array of Maniacal Rulers, Raving Narcissists, and Psychotic Visionaries. Chris, welcome. Can I call you Chris? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, great. Definitely. <laughs> thanks. <laughs> so, welcome, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Oh, it's awesome to be on. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. You are obviously uh, an enormous history buff. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I mean, reading this book, book yeah. it's a really remarkable book, and I have to just compliment you on it. Uh, it's really well written and incredibly easy to read, but it's also an incredibly unique book. I don't think there's many people who could have written this book because you really have this quite encyclopedic knowledge about uh, world history uh, and you're interpreting it through a clinical psychology lens. So, yeah, so maybe tell our listeners, like, what is this, what is this book about? What's the, what's the main thesis? Yeah, so the book is How Madness Shaped History, and uh, it's, it's kind of what it is or what it says on the tin. Um, so... Uh, my interest was in, uh, yeah, so I mean, I kind of had the sense of like, you know, what would I have done if I could live life all over again? And apparently, instead of being an academic, I would be another academic. Uh, just, <laughs> just a historian. Uh, just, yeah, just yeah, in history as opposed uh, to psychology. Right. So I guess I'm not a very imaginative person. <laughs> um, but, uh, but I mean, I think a lot of it is I like telling stories. So I like telling stories about psychology and right. I like telling stories about history. But um, yeah, a lot of the genesis of the book kind of came from, you know, I'd read other sort of books talking about like societies and culture and history and the uh, sort of the recent 
thread of a lot of them uh, was kind of like this guns, germs, and steel kind of, right, sort of, like, right. sort of uh, the idea that like societies are largely shaped by the environment uh, or plagues or mm. natural resources. And, you know, and of course we're going through COVID-19 now, so we can see there, there's, uh, they have a fair point, you know, right. to some of that, but there really was this sort of effort to de-emphasize sort of like the great person model, the idea that individuals matter to the course of history um, and I didn't really find that element of it persuasive. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think to some extent, you know, individuals do matter. And I think then here again in 2020, we also do see that individuals do matter, just plagues or the environment or the economy matter. But I, I have this kind of, I'm, I'm very interested in dark things in general. Uh, and so rather than write about all these great people who did wonderful things for their society, I decided to write about all these terrible people who did <laughs> terrible things to their cultures and societies right. and such. And, uh, and of course, that, gel- that gelled very nicely with my background in clinical psychology. So it's kind of fun right. to like take some of these uh, individuals from history, you know, talk about what they did, you know, talk about their impact on history, but also look at like, you know, you know certainly based on partial evidence, historical evidence that is somewhat limited, you know, uh, but to kind of think about like what might have been going on for these individuals to make them how they were and, and why did they end up with as much power as they did and how did they use it and what, and what kind of impact did that have on, uh, on society. So uh, yeah. it was a lot of fun to write and, I, and, you know, hopefully it's some degree of fun to read as well. Nice. Which historical figure was sort of the most fun for you to, like, learn about or write about or, like, explore? Because yeah, you talk I... about so many people, and it's, <laughs> and it's one woman that was just, like, murdering young women and, you know, bathing in their blood. Or <laughs> I was like, I didn't even yeah. know blood was a moisturizer. That's insane. <laughs> and apparently it's true. Yes, I looked it, it up and, and I was like, whoa, I actually tried to like nick myself a little bit to see if I could probably apply with it and it would work, but I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. I'm, I'm, I'm too much of a coward. Uh, now, mind you, we do have other moisturizers available for people today, too. So it's uh, not an absolute requirement. Uh, you know. So Elizabeth Bathory, that's the woman right, you're talking right, about. Right. Yeah, Bathory, so yeah. Uh, I, I would say she is, she is really fun to, uh, again... I should qualify saying when we talk about like fun, I mean, right, obviously, these, in, these are, right. <laughs> these are <laughs> these horrible people, people yeah. doing horrible things. People right. were victimized, and we're not. I'm not trying to diminish that. Right, right, right. Uh, but these are these are fascinating, probably really right. intriguing. You know, individuals who have done these remarkable negative things, and so she is very interested in talking about. And, and yeah, I talk about her case in class a lot because she mm. fits very nicely not only in history but to psychology, and mm. and I do a lot of stuff with forensic psychology in particular, and you know, serial murder and such, and so a lot of the kids in, in university enjoy hearing about, yeah, maybe enjoy is a bad word for this, but right. uh, are intrigued by the, the story of Elizabeth Bathory. So she's, uh, you know, she is definitely fun. I, I find the Rome, some of the Roman emperors to be kind of fascinating as well. I mean, uh, mm-hmm. and of course you get your, like, your, your, you know, you, you can't write a book like this without talking about like Hitler and, and Stalin and Mao right. a little bit, you know, but, uh, but I really find some of these like Caligula and uh, Elagabalus and, you know, some of those, you know, uh, emperors, the Roman, the Roman Empire got stuck with <laughs> for sometimes for years, and uh, it gives me hope because they survived. You know, well, I mean, eventually they didn't, but you know, but they survived right. for centuries with terrible rulers um, and kept going. So in 2020, it was actually kind of a positive message uh, to some extent. Like we can, we can get through this. Uh, and if, if yeah, <laughs> if Rome could survive three to four years of Caligula, we can survive four years of Trump. It'll, it'll somehow come together. So, uh, you know, yeah, it's interesting though, <laughs> because in your chapter about Trump, 
doesn't really seem like you think he's mad. It it depends on how we're what we're thinking about as mad. I mean, I, I think that there's been a lot of speculation about Trump and sort of like what's wrong with him. And, and mm. you know, if you ask me, is there something wrong with him? <laughs> is he mad? I I would probably would say yes. You know yeah. that 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 he is. Does he have schizophrenia? No, I don't mm. think he has. You know, and some of the other figures that show up in the book did have more serious mental illnesses like psychosis, but uh, I don't think he is, is has, has schizophrenia. Um, I think he's kind of your traditional fragile narcissist, I guess would be the way to, and I don't think that's remotely, you know, startling diagnosis on my part. So many other people kind of said the same thing. Um, you know, so he's, he's in Trump world, you know, and uh, it's all about Trump. And I don't think he's an ideologue in any meaningful way. Uh, you know, people have been talking about like comparisons to Hitler and the Nazis and this sort of stuff. Um, and uh, I don't really think that's really accurate. I mean, I, I, he's probably more similar to some of these uh, like kleptocratic rulers we've had in uh, Italy. Like was it Berlusconi, I think was the, the fellow's name or, you know, maybe a little bit more like a you know, uh, Perone, um, or something of that sort. But, uh, um, no, I think it's, you know, we, we, we got what he was packaged as he, you know, kind of came in as I'm a, you know, brash, self-centered, fragile, you know, individual who doesn't care about any of the rules and the majority of people voted him in and, you know, people are speculating, well, maybe he'll be different once he's president. And, you know, I'll give him credit that he did, did you know, he was exactly yeah. <laughs> what, you know, was on the packaging. Right. Um, so, you know, I but mean, do the, the, you, just yeah. from your like clinical perspective, does he fit the criteria to actually be diagnosed with like a personality disorder, like a narcissistic? Yeah, I mean, it's, t- it's, it's tough to tell from a distance, right? You know, right. so it's, um, you know, there are all of these sort of like ethical guidelines about what we can and can't say. And there's a lot of debates about them in the sense of, you know, there's the, I think it's the Goldwater rule. That's in fairness, that's for psychiatrists, not psychologists. But uh, the, the general gist is we have to, you know, put a bunch of asterisks up and say, right. I, I haven't done a clinical assessment with him, you know, uh, and if I did, I wouldn't be able to tell you about it anyway. Right. Um, you know, but sort of what we can say is sort of like based on his public persona, based on the behaviors he's engaged in publicly, uh, those behaviors are consistent with someone who would have like a narcissistic personality disorder, you know, so mm-hmm. I can't say definitively that he has a narcissistic personality disorder, but I, I don't, other people have, I mean, other psychiatrists and, uh, have come out with books even talking about it. And I, and I will say, I can't find a lot to, to challenge, you know, that, that particular set of diagnoses, but, uh, you know, basically madness is just continuing the same behavior despite it causing damage to yourself or to others. And I, I'd say, you know, hmm. that happened over the last four years. Um, so, yeah, I, there was a interesting point. I think Sam Harris made it, which was that, um, in some ways we were you know we benefited from trump's personality flaws in some ways like he comparing him to like a stalin or a mao he said that well these people one thing that made them particularly dangerous was a commitment to something other than themselves right they have these large commitments like hitler uh, for you know, for all his flaws, was committed to some larger political ideals and goals, whereas Trump really has no commitments <laughs> no, beyond right, Donald J. Trump, right? Like, right. and I think yeah. he could easily kill or order people to be killed if he, you know, felt personally offended yeah. by them. But for the most part, you know, he there's no there's no groups of like as long as you 
kiss his butt like mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> he can pretty much get along with anybody um, yeah. as long as it's all about him and yeah so yeah, I thought that was an interesting point interesting comparison and I mean you mentioned in the book that like at least from a madness perspective he's not nearly as interesting as uh, some previous historical <laughs> figures yeah I think that's kind of the blessing is, is you know people point out is that he also was chaotic you know mm-hmm. um, and that he didn't get much done lazy yeah. um, which you know, the first three years of his presidency, that was great. I mean, it was really sort of an embarrassing clown show uh, to some extent. It was a reality television show, uh, which is sort of embarrassing if that's the government. Um, but um, but it didn't, you know, I mean, I, I would have said the George W. Bush years were much more harmful uh, to, to the United States mm-hmm. and to the world uh, in many respects than were the Trump years until 2020. You know, and there you see where like an individual does matter. Uh, and that we really needed someone competent, you know, to, to run things in 2020. And that wasn't what we had. You know, I don't think it matters that he was a Republican or a Democrat. We just had Trump, whatever he was calling himself at that moment. And that, you know, he was not in a position to, um, face the challenges of 20 or offer us leadership during the, the challenges of 2020. Yeah. And I mean, think about yeah how many people have died as a result. We're still, I mean, the kind of life we're living right now, right? A mm-hmm. lot of us are going to have lost. Well, like, yeah, it's just like a whole bunch of years that are going to just <laughs> not, you know, you, we're just not, life is on pause because of all of this. But people do matter in those cases, right? Like if, if mm-hmm. Obama was president, for example, I'm sure yeah. we'd be living a very different reality right now. Yeah, a third term of Obama would have done us a lot more positive, <laughs> I think, than than uh, I, again. I, I, you, know, I, you might have conservative uh, listeners, so I want to make sure I'm not trying to offend people that I voted for Trump. One. You know, yeah. yeah. <laughs> 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 I mean, part of my thing is I actually, you know, I think sort of partisanship in general is is actually part of our problem. So I want to also right. be careful that I'm not, I don't want to join that partisan throng and just you know, virtue signal about disliking Trump. I mean, I do dislike Trump and I'm, I'm, I'm in print saying I dislike Trump in various places, including the book to some extent. Um, but, uh, but I think also there are lots of problems on the left and, and the sort of general sense of, you know, you're either progressive or you're a Nazi is just as bad or, or, or is at least in the realm of being bad in a, in a similar way as the, the problems with Trumpism and, and the, the sort of fragmentation of the the Republican Party and and all of that. So, right. And so the last time we spoke about Trump um, with Don Moore, it was in terms of like confidence, like overconfidence. I was mentioning that how I think that the reason Trump was so popular is because in in like this Western culture, there's this idea of like oh you know more the more confidence the better. And just because he was able to say things confidently, that it you know people sort of just bought it. But I also want to get your thoughts on what do you think like what do you think his presidency is indicative of what might be going on in the country overall right i think it's also leads to just how like people are seeing like i feel like world in black and white right even he like when he talks is just always really simple right good bad not good not bad right it's just very simplistic very you know black and white kind of thinking um so i'm curious like what you think about that or like what other things you think are just like you know, indicative of why he's in power and what that might say about just the sort of, you know, zeitgeist. Yeah, I mean, I I think, uh, you know, Trump is both symptomatic of problems we were having prior to Trump and then also an exacerbating factor for how those problems got worse in the last uh, four years. So a lot of the issues about partisanship, um, 
you know, have, well, you can really kind of trace them back at least to the 1990s. And of course, they've been kind of steadily getting worse. And, you know, you can get into this kind of game of, you know, did the Republicans start it? I mean, yeah, I think so. But, you know, uh, but the Democrats really haven't always shined as a moral exemplar of how to, you know, not fall for the same trap. Um, so, I mean, I think that, yeah, I mean, certainly people in general are, tend to be, so what I'll say is like 2020 really convinced me that my optimism about human nature was misplaced, uh, to some extent. (laughs) (laughs) And I wasn't by nature a terribly optimistic person, uh, about human nature. Um, so, or my belief in the rationality of human, you know, attitude and decision-making was clearly misplaced, uh, to some extent. Uh, and I might put myself in that too. I don't want to say I'm like you know an exception to to, to any of this, um, but people tend to tend to be black and white thinkers, uh, you know, binary thinkers. Uh, we like a bad guy um, mm. for any kind of situation. We like to think of ourselves and our group as moral, um, and we like simple, you know. So we like simple explanations for why things are going wrong. So, you know, I think you know. Uh, what was going wrong on the right, you know, can be traced back again to the nineties and the rise of, you know, radio, you know, conservative radio and, and the new Gingrich years and, and all this kind of stuff. But there, there really was this kind of, you know, ev- the evolution of give no ground, you know, this is a culture war, you know, and we, you know, it's, it, there's no compromise in this. And that was, an, that was hmm. there was an evolution of that. Um, Same more because we weren't around in America then. Like what was the right, like, why was this, like, what were they sort of, fighting against the left or for. Yeah. So, I mean, you can kind of trace things back to like the, the really last period of, of like huge ascendancy for the right was the 1980s, you know, mm-hmm. and there's a little bit of an upswing in the George W. Bush years as well. But, um, you know, in the eighties, there was this kind of like the moral majority and the sense of, you know, if, if, if the conservatives got upset by something that was bad, you know, for whatever mm-hmm. the target was, whether that was art movies, you know, of course it was a big, more panic over Dungeons and Dragons and all kinds of other oh, stuff. So if the, if the conservatives didn't like it, that was, that was, it was cancelable. I mean, it was sort of like what we now call cancel culture to some extent. Uh, it was coming from the right, you know, back then. Um, and then people just got tired of it, you know, and what gradually happened is that, you know, the, the conservatives felt more and more like they were losing the sort of culture war over lots. And they were, it was absolutely mm-hmm. true. And the more they started losing it, the the more hard line they became about the sense of like, we need to, and some of the issues I can kind of understand, like, you know, if you believe, for instance, I'm actually pretty neutral on this particular topic, but you know, if you believe that a fetus is a human life, then there's no right. compromising, you know, whether you eliminate that human life at 22 weeks or at 10 weeks or at four weeks, it's still a murder, you know, in that person's mind. Right. Um, you know, so I can kind of understand on some of these issues why, you know, again, I'm not necessarily supporting one side or the other on that particular debate. Um, but I can understand why that is sort of like a hard line, you know, in the sand. And, uh, you know, they, they felt like their way of understanding how the country worked was slipping away. And let me tell mm-hmm. you, I'm 50 almost. I'm almost. I'll be 50 in July. I get it. I mean, I, I, I feel that way a little bit sometimes, too. Yeah. You know, you feel like the, you look around and the country doesn't make any sense anymore. It's not your country, you know, um, anymore. And mm-hmm. um, it's disconcerting, uh, you know, to some extent. Now, hopefully you can adapt to it and see some of the positive and sort of roll with it. But for a lot of people, that's a, that's a struggle. Um, and it's very easy, I think, to be, as I did, be 19, 20, 25, and kind of go, ah, you know, it's getting better. This is this is the way it should be, 
And then you end up being 50, kind of going, oh, what the hell are these kids doing with it today? You know, and it's the cyclical pattern. Um, the thing that's new now is that the left is doing it too. Um, right. You know, and that's different. That is unusual. And that really has sort of evolved over the last five to 10 years. Uh, and so they've started to adopt some of the same worldviews and not, not, not obviously not exactly the same worldviews, but the same sort of like approach to. Right. The, the sort of like the culture war in the sense of like being more authoritarian, more censorious, you know, drawing these hard, no compromise lines in the sand. Um, Canceling people. Right? Yeah. I mean, and even, you know, I voted for the guy, but Biden was the president of unity for about 45 seconds. You know, and, uh, you know, he's, so far, I think he's a lot better than Trump. Don't get me wrong. I, I'm happy with how things turned out. But in terms of him being sort of a unity president, which is kind of how he ran, I, I haven't seen that yet. Um, I might. I mean, I, I agree with probably the majority of things he's done, but they definitely haven't been compromised from positions. Um, so, yeah, I saw I one one comment uh, on Twitter was saying, "I'm having a hard time," and I think they were from a different perspective. They were saying, "I'm having a hard time squaring these calls for unity with these descriptions of the pervasiveness of white supremacy." In the, in the country, right? And I think, so they were saying, uh, basically talking about the inauguration speech, I think, um, mm. where half of it was saying, we need unity, we need unity. The other half was like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> oh, the, what, this country is full of white supremacists and mm. that need to be rooted out. Uh, and I think the person who actually tweeted that was from the perspective of like, well, why are you calling for unity, right? Mm. But you could also sort of see it from the other side, which is like, well, if you want unity probably shouldn't call, you know, everybody white supremacists. And that, I mean, that category uh, has been um, expanding very rapidly. I mean, we, we had a anti-racist educator on this podcast, uh, my friend Kat, explaining that, I mean, in her view, the fact of teaching English yeah, can be categorized, in schools, can be categorized as, as white, white supremacy, supremacy, like technically, right. because if you trace it back, it's about colonialism and England yeah. and empire and, and, and this and that. So, yeah, it's it's interesting, though, because wasn't there... I was too young, but wasn't there, like, late 80s, there was sort of a, a bit of a backlash about political correctness mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And is is what's happening now anything like that? Like, do you, rem- do you remember? Was Were people getting... People weren't getting fired... Were yeah, they back I don't think then, it, or was it just a social thing? I don't, I don't know. I don't think it was as intense as now. Granted, you know, in the early '90s, I wasn't in an academic position. You know, I was just graduating from university myself, um, so it's entirely possible I may not have been as alert to some of that stuff that was going on. So we, we certainly do hear about this idea that there was a sort of political correctness wave in the nineteen early early to mid nineteen nineties, and then it kind of there was a backlash to it. Um, that kind of made it go away for about 15 years, and now we're sort of back in it. Uh, in terms of, like, you know, firings and such, I don't know that there was the same sort of perceived wave of firings like there have been today. But again, then again, there wasn't social media either. Um, so it might have been harder um, to, you know, a lot of things we're seeing today really are somebody does something or says something, and then there's this massive like Twitter mob, you know, that you know, calls out the person's employer, their university, um, whatever it may be. Um, you know, we had the case of the what was it the student at uh, you know it was a 
um, white um, girl who had used the 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 sort of stylized N word, you know, and uh, mm-hmm. she had just gotten her you know driver's license and and you know kind oh, of talk yeah. like a, you know like like people do like in like rap right, you know right. whatever yes um and, and it uh, wasn't she was just in the car by herself right it's not like she was saying it to somebody she was just talking yeah with her by herself right yeah. correct yeah she I did not that. use it in a way to you know derog you know in a derogatory way towards another right. human being um but she, you know she said it like someone would in like a rap video or something of that sort and it's and it's you know it's it's not allowed i mean it's, it's you know we, we all maybe should know better than to, to to do that but she was like 16 or something you know at the time mm-hmm. this had happened years ago and I think she'd apologized for it, you know, already, and um, and still, and I forget which university it was off the top of my head, but she still ended up getting kicked you know, out, or, kicked. or I think they kicked her off the team yes. that she was supposed to play on, and, correct? Right, she was an athlete or like a cheerleader, I believe, or something, yeah. right? Yes, and it yes. was, you know, sort of in air quotes, it was suggested that she withdraw. She withdraw, right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. They didn't mm-hmm. kick her out, but they, yeah, yeah. It's odd, and the, I mean, I guess more relevant for us is I've also heard of, um, you know. Professors getting into trouble, like English mm-hmm. professors that read. There's a book by James Baldwin that has the N word in the title, right? Mm-hmm. And I mean, of course, I mean, the man put it, you know, I'm sure, uh, you know, for a reason, like he wasn't, yeah. right? There, there was a purpose for it. But apparently, I think somebody at, I can't remember, Yale or somewhere said it in the class, you know, in an English class in the context of, you know, and people got upset about it. And I'm just like, well, you know, we have to take context into account, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, there were other like, yeah, there was a professor in California who was like using a. I mean, my understanding, at least, was he was repeating a word in Chinese or a phrase in Chinese that sounded oh. sounded like the N word. You know, it was not in context. It was clearly an entirely different language, and just the right. the, the syllables of this particular word sounded like the N word. And he, I think, was removed from his class uh, after complaints wow. that. Hmm, that I mean, yeah. What do we do with this? That's just something I wanted to ask you, Chris, because you have tenure, mm-hmm. uh, and at the moment, <laughs> right, right. But um, I I feel like increasingly tenure doesn't make you as safe as it used to. Mm-hmm. Um, there was mm-hmm. a, a quite interesting case. I think it might have been some other university in Florida. Did you hear about mm-hmm. the case of Professor? I think Charles Negi is mm-hmm. his, is his name. Oh yeah. Oh, he's yeah. a friend of mine. Actually, oh, wow. no, I know. I know. I know very well who he is. He he was. Uh, he, I should be up be up front with you. He was my dissertation chair. Oh wow! Um, oh, and wow. yeah, so I know exactly who he is. Yeah, yeah. And um, he had. This is at University of Central Florida. Yeah, and he. Um, this was after the uh, the killing of George Floyd, and you know there was a very intense emotional outburst, and you know which is understandable. Um, and he had posted something to Twitter, and I don't and I don't remember the exact you know, phrasing that he had used, but it was something about, he was making an argument, you know, that uh, black Americans have some kind of privilege or something of that sort, uh, which was, of course, totally off message. It was not the time. It was not the place. I don't remember exactly how he worded it. It certainly wasn't something that I would have put uh, on Twitter myself, but, um, you know, uh, and that caused this like massive outcry. And, you know, my, my, at least my understanding of the case, you know, as I followed it, like in the local news, you know, and I talked to him, too, so I've, I've gotten his side of things, um, is that, uh, you know, the speech he made was protected. He works at a state university. He was a tenured professor at a state university. Uh, people have the right to be offended by what he said. I, I don't, you know, um, 
say that people should or should not be offended by what he said. That's a, that's a subjective, you know, opinion. Um, but people, of course, called for his firing. Now, what he said, of course, was protected. So what they then did is a sort of this investigation. They launched this investigation and solicited students to complain about any other acts of bias or whatever, received bias in the classroom. Um, so he has, he has been fired. He, uh, he was fired, you know, maybe a couple of weeks ago uh, by uh, UCF. So, and I don't, you know, in fairness, I don't know the details of any other accusations that were made, but it, it does seem like these accusations were made after the fact that yeah. he tweeted these things that offended yeah. some individuals. Um, so, yeah, I mean. To, they spoke to 300 people, right? Mm-hmm. So this was a enormous investigation. Like, mm-hmm. imagine, okay, so he's in the news for saying things that upset a lot of people. And you're now going to talk to 300 people to try to find at least one of them willing to claim that he did something fireable. I mean, he just, he was fired because of the tweet. I like, there's no, to me, there's no, like (laughs) the tweet set off this, like what seems like it would have been endless investigation until they had some justification to get, to get rid of him. And, and, uh, yeah, it's, um, I think, like, it's concerning in a way because, like, even though you said, like, oh, well, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have said what he said, mm-hmm. like, you definitely do from time to time say things that would upset people, right? Like, you, sure. you're, you're, you're one of one of like a few psychology professors that I see on Twitter willing to really like engage in the nuance. Uh, of issues when so so many people will not and just want to see it as black and white and i i yeah. think i think your takes are very reasonable and i i recommend everybody read your book especially the chapter um the madness of crowds or the madness of the masses the madness Sorry. of the masses yeah because i mean i think your your take on what's going on in the u.s yeah. currently is spot on and like i totally i totally agree with a lot of what you say but yeah i mean the the problem is now. Now Charles Negi is gone. Yeah, like you might be the guy. Yeah. Right? Like you might be. That's <laughs> my joke about most, so far. Yeah, <laughs> the most the most conservative person left in the psychology department, or the most at least because we're not like although, like the, the yeah. things you think. Uh, the, and the things that we think are not actually unusual. Yeah. Uh, what's unusual is being willing to say say them and 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 tweet about them and stuff like that right. and 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 argue for nuance and argue for like. Um, academic freedom and and being willing to like discuss controversial things and and say controversial mm-hmm. things. So like, I don't know. I mean, how do you how do you feel about this? I mean, fifty retirement is kind mm-hmm. of like it's still it's, a fair way away. I know. I'm sure you, you <laughs> still count the years. That's you true. still want to work for another decade. Yeah. I assume at least <laughs> two. I'm trying to get two out of this. So should um, we should we just all delete our Twitters right now? This is what I'm asking. I think the yeah. world would be a better place if we all did that. So yeah. I, I vote for yes. Delete. Delete. No. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, I'll be up I'll say I have my tweets on a three month auto delete anyway. Oh, yeah. really? So I think oh, I think wow. there's a certain amount. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. So I think there's there's some merit in that you know uh and doing that sort of thing and limiting your online profile a little bit um not that i, I don't think there's anything i ever said that i wouldn't stand by but on the no, other hand no. you'd be surprised how people will kind of uncharitably uh mm. you know interpret anything you know at any point and i think 
But what if you, you know, said something really brilliant, then you're writing something later on and you're like, oh, remember that time I said this one, just, it was just right and I just said it perfectly and I want to go back. What do you do then, Chris? I, yeah. I, I usually assume there's probably not a lot that I put on Twitter that's absolutely going to fit into that category. Uh, if there is, I take comfort, I don't know if you know this, that the, uh, I think it's the Library of Congress saves every tweet. Um, oh. That the U.S. government <laughs> is recording every single tweet. Great. Uh, they, so they all do, they all do still exist. That's, 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 I believe so. Let me. Yeah. You know, I hope I don't. We don't like get tagged we'll with like, fake, fake news or whatever. Yeah. But I believe that that is the case. That the Library of Congress does save it. And of course, there's always things like Wayback Machine and a lot Should of kind of stuff. So. Timeout. Okay. So apparently they did save every tweet from 2010 until 2017 but then they stopped saving them in 2017 or at least they claim now to have stopped saving them i'm sure they're still doing it but (laughs) yeah so all my more recent tweets are really lost uh, to posterity i guess so yeah (laughs) but but i'll say i mean after you know i mean you know in the few months after george uh, floyd was killed after the protests and riots and all that stuff and the sort of the cancellations began um, it was a, it, I would say it was a really bad time, I mean, you know, in, in academia. I mean, the, the atmosphere, well, I mean, I'm sure you guys know. I mean, the, 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 the feeling was that this was a out of control roller, you know, freight, freight train and to step in front of it was, uh, and I think, you know, I had talked to Jonathan Haidt a little bit at the time. That was kind of like his quote. So I don't want to steal it from him, but essentially, you know, you had to be careful stepping in front of this locomotive, uh, because it'll, right. just, it'll just run you over. And you have to give it a little bit of time to to run itself, not run itself out, but, you know, to sort of, like, people are very emotional, and they'll calm down a little bit with time, and then you can, you know, try to bring people's attention back to data um, right. and stuff like that. I mean, so that's kind of like one of the things I'm interested in now is also the sense of, like, how how do you have difficult conversations around, you know, these really, really emotional topics um, while, while not... You know, well, first off, not getting canceled, obviously, but also doing so in a productive, constructive way where everybody kind of feels like they got heard, you know, that it was okay to share different views, that someone else who has a different view isn't evil, and um, and it's not increasing polarization. You know, so I'm, you know, and I don't know that I have all the answers to this, but, you know, that's the kind of thing I'm thinking about now is how do we decrease the level of polarization we have right now in the United States um, and 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 you know, bring people's attention to like, you know, you, you might have some fair points, but you might not be a hundred percent right about what you're thinking. Uh, and here's some data that may, you know, so maybe it will change your mind, but maybe it won't. And that's okay if it doesn't. Uh, and that's, you know, I, I think the proportion of people that are in that space right now are relatively few. Uh, and everybody, and most people are on one side or the other of this big rock fight, um, that's going on now. So the, the goal is to try to get people to stop throwing rocks without getting hit by one yourself. Um, and, uh, yeah, yeah. I think it's where things yeah. are at. But how useful do you think is it bringing data to people? Because I think you do mention in the book, and I kind of agree mm-hmm. that, you know, when people get together and they have, like, strong emotions, they make, you know, bad decisions and they do, you know, silly things. And I feel like a lot of people are just driven by emotions, right? It's not about yeah. the data. It's not about the evidence. It's more about how they feel and what emotions mm-hmm. are brought up, you know, by different things and different... Um, so how useful... And, and I mean... Yeah. How do we have conversations like this where we're sort of willing to listen to each other? Because I feel like even the people who talk about safe spaces, you get into a safe space with them, quote unquote. And then if you say something that they don't agree with, you know, 
you know, it, they're not open to that. And it's like, yeah. well, if the same people who are, you know, talking about this aren't even willing to have an open conversation, then who is willing to have an open conversation? Yeah. And, and that's been kind of like my, my one of the things I, I was saying about, like, you know, the extent to which I've been surprised to some extent by, you know, people's difficulty in, in, in doing exactly that. I mean, part of it is like watching other academics, you know, and, um, you know, even on like, yeah, I mean, Twitter, we expect Twitter to be Twitter. But, you know, right. I mean, even like Facebook, which I usually think of as a, as a calmer platform, it's not always, but uh, they have issues and so no question about it. But, you know, you can kind of present a middle of the road, you know, op-ed, for instance, on something and just watch the fur fly uh, over this. And like people who I, I like and people who I respect, you know, debase themselves, I would say, you know, in terms of their, you know, I, I think like, like I keep saying kids, but I'm, I'm getting old. Uh, but, you know, like like students are watching, you know, right. and, you know, and we as old people, uh, you know, these are not like, you know, young, you know, Gen, you know, Z people. These are boomers and, and Gen Xers that are just, you know, irrational and have PhDs and stuff, you know, and, um it's, it is hard. That's what I think it's kind of, just, you know, and I, I actually, you know, you mentioned conservative. I'm actually, I'm, I, you know, I voted for Biden. I'm pretty on the left. But, you know, and most, so most of the people I know are, are even further on, on the left, I think, than me. Maybe that's where I am, the token conservative. Uh, but, um, no, it, it is hard. I have found that, if you know, first off, you know, keep your own cool. Uh, right. is, is, you know, so right. don't get... Don't get prodded into mud fights. You know, right. don't get goaded. Uh, just walk away. It's low stakes until you say something stupid. Yeah. Uh, then it becomes high stakes for you. Um, so mm-hmm. just don't get goaded into garbage. Um, don't curse at people. You know, right. don't be snarky and snappy. Um, yeah. But if you can kind of model the sense of like, I hear you. You know, I hear what you're saying. You have a fair point, And here's where I disagree. And here's some evidence I can bring to it. I don't know that I've like super convinced anybody of, the, of anything, but you can. I can sometimes kind of see people at least ratchet it down a little bit. Um, they're still on their side, but um, but it's it's going to be. I mean, to be frank, you know, when I talk to people about persuasion, you know, everybody's like, like, why should I bother persuading these other people? They're all evil. You know, uh, they're not listening. Well, yeah, because you called them an asshole. No, yeah. nobody's going to listen to you after you call you them an asshole. You know, do you? You know, when someone calls you an asshole, do you listen to them more? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, nobody does that. So, you know, persuasion is a long process, you know, and you may never see the consequence. You know, you may have actually had an impact on someone, but it may take them six months or a year or five years to, to really think through what you said. You may never see it. Um, so it is a process where you're not going to get feedback, you know, which most of us want feedback, you know. Um, and um, yeah. so you have to just you don't don't expect recipro- uh, reciprocation, you know, and don't expect feedback, you know, yeah. and just keep doing it. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, it took us, you know, like I said, from the 90s till today was like 30 some years. Um, it's going to take us 30 years to get out of this, I think, is the reality of it. And that's what more and more people are just going to have to make a, a decision that I'm not going to get into fights on Twitter I'm um, I'm going to keep presenting data to people. Um, you know, I'm not going to get you know angry if people don't like my data, uh, and and I'm going to try to put things. You know, this is a thing. I'm going to try to put things as carefully as I can, so that a a reasonably objective, rational person would not see anything 
um, like a, like a grenade, uh, mm-hmm. you know, in, in what I've said. Um, and um, there's no guarantee. Like, you know, we, we know that people respond in bad faith sometimes. So there's no guarantee that that's still going to save you um, necessarily. But, um, you know, it is a, a long process, um, unfortunately. So, um, but yeah, I sometimes think that it's not even the person that you're arguing against that you have to convince, right? I'm like, yeah, but there's like 10 other people that mm-hmm. are sitting quietly there listening. Like, maybe yeah. I will not change this person's mind. But the other people listening will sort of maybe, maybe I'll convince somebody that's on the fence about either issue, right? Like, maybe those people who they will never, never speak up and say, oh, yeah, you changed my mind. But one yeah. can hope. Right. Yeah, I think you get usually about like four or five backs and forth before everybody starts thinking it's ridiculous. Um, so I, I would, you know, again, I'm, not, I'm about to say I'm going to say I'm not perfect at any of this stuff. So you can, mm-hmm. yeah, probably even in the last not, not not only three months but three days, you can probably find me examples of me, you know, <laughs> like not taking my own advice. Uh, but oh, I think uh, you're very measured. I I, <laughs> I, I think you're a, a really good example of how to how to do Twitter and how to try to introduce nuance because i like i see you discussing a lot of things and but i don't know i haven't seen you get into very heated exchanges i mean i'm sure i'm sure it happens i, I don't see everything you post but no, i think you're yeah. a, a good example well i think one thing i have i've tried to get better at is disengaging quickly from when i see things heating up you know and so you'll, you'll see if some some of my posts is what say like okay well have a nice day that's usually my end uh when i'm out you know it's like okay you're not really arguing debating in good faith anymore so i'm just not gonna bother um and i think if, if maybe if more people did that you know the second you get called a nazi or whatever else you're gonna say okay well i'm out <laughs> so this has been fun uh you you know sincerely i wish you a good day um and yeah. just kind of leave it you know on a positive note it may be sort of dismissive but it's still at least positively dismissive i guess you know if that's a word uh but uh but yeah i mean people are mostly convinced by stories right you're right i mean people don't listen to data very well uh, it's really about anecdotes which are the worst piece of information possible um yeah. you know because <laughs> you know everybody can find an anecdote i can find anecdotes of people who think they've been you know abducted by ufos you know so um ufos are ter- i mean ufos are terrible information they are terrible information but anecdotes are also terrible information i think um, they're called lived experiences now I, and, I and that's definitely data yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well i actually did publish something on the uh, sort of the idea of lived experiences you know again kind of gently saying that yeah we just have to be careful i mean they can be illustrative right i mean if you want to use one to sort of illustrate a point of where you have data, um, then that's sort of okay. But we should not take lived experiences or anecdotes, whatever we want to call them, as if they were data. You know, right. and that's where I think people, um, you know, because we all have lived experiences, just means it's your opinion, it's your perception. Right. You know, it doesn't mean you're wrong. Uh, right. You know, we all distort things though in ways that are sort of self, you know, what would be the word, you know, self gratifying, I guess. Um, you know, and we have to remember that, you know, yeah. that, and of course this comes out of clinical psychology. I remember being trained in clinical psychology of saying, like, you have to be aware, like your clients are going to lie to you all over the place, you know, <laughs> yeah. and that's just the reality of it. But that doesn't mean that that thing is true uh, necessarily. So, um, but a lot of this kind of comes from, you know, the sort of the postmodernism from way back in the sixties and that sense of their, you know, objectivity and truth itself are, um, you know, the products of an oppressive system uh, or something or other, um, which oddly enough can, can itself sort of eventually double back into these almost, you know, problematic kinds of statements. I remember like the Smithsonian Institute with their over the summer where they had this like flyer on 
on whiteness and they would talk about how like objectivity and reason are like white white values and it's like uh uh, yeah i would i would never say that um but um, i would never say that either (laughs) i mean it sounds kind of racist to me but um you know so they actually did take that down which was good but uh but that's kind of where sometimes you end up is it's like horseshoe theory, right? It is that eventually the far left and the far right actually kind of start to sound a lot like each other. And uh, there's a comedian, Ryan Long. I don't know if you ever come across his work, but he has a uh, really funny video of when racists and wokes agree. I think that's that's more or less what it's titled. And you can look it up on, um, on YouTube. It's not, I don't think it's terribly offensive, you know, but it is kind of, yeah, a lot of stuff in it. Like, <laughs> wait, you think interracial marriage should be banned? I think interracial marriage should be banned. Like, yeah. Oh, I think you brought it up at some point, Paul. I remember well, you talking about it. Maybe I'll pull it up and we'll put maybe it in the show notes. Maybe ages yeah. ago. So, Chris, yeah. you mentioned briefly in the book, you have had one sort of flirtation with cancellation in the past. I, I kind of just wanted to ask about the dynamics of that, like how you got through it like well first of like the details of what actually happened but like sort of just how you got through it what happened to your relationships um and and how it's changed you if at all yeah and it it was a it was maybe 2017 or so and there's happened to be this listserv that i was uh a member of of like thousands of game studies uh scholars and um Wait, my memory of, i think it was thousands, thousands yeah it was big <laughs> yeah it was big. yeah i know wow <laughs> i don't know maybe i'm again maybe it's another you would have worked it all out by now <laughs> maybe i'm maybe exaggerating maybe I, a... I do want to say it's thousands i don't know Shut maybe it's only hundreds we can figure a out lot anyways a lot um but well i mean of course a lot of them are in like the humanities and you know and that kind of stuff they're not mm, all like social psychologists and such yeah um, but, um, it was a discussion that came up, it was after one of these mass shooting events and that might've been the Christchurch, New Zealand shooting. I don't, I don't remember, you know, I, I don't, don't hold me to that. Um, but there was a sense of, you know, we need to talk about video games, you know, that kind of thing was coming up and sort of like, you know, um, and somehow it had some, yeah, basically so it was something about, we need to talk about the toxicity in gamer culture. I think it was kind of like realized the narrative. that. So that shooter made some comments about what did he what did he actually say so i remember the christ church shooter killed 55 people across two different mosques and he sort of live streamed himself doing Mm -hmm. it and you mentioned in the book he made some kind of offhand comments about video games or something yeah he he had done a lot of like social media uh you know recordings and that kind of stuff and he had some i don't and i'd be frankly i don't at this point remember the details of what it was that he had had uh, but he had some sort of video game reference, I think, somewhere uh, in either the recordings, or it might have even been something that was on one of his weapons. I don't, I, again, I don't exactly remember the details of that. But it was obviously a trolling kind of thing. Like, you know, you knew he was, I mean, if you were not getting super emotionally involved in it, you could see where obviously he's trying to get people to talk about video games, you know. Um, and, uh, and of course, people fell for it, you know, <laughs> inevitably. Um, and it was just, it, it, the, the, I think the post I responded to uh, was something to the effect of, you know, well, somebody put something like, we need to talk about toxicity in video games. And, you know, my reply was like, well, we have to be careful that we're not stereotyping gamers. You know, we certainly wouldn't, we certainly wouldn't say that if someone from, say, like, you know, uh, you know, a, a Muslim community committed a, a violent act, that we should talk about toxicity 
you know, among Muslims, you know, I was saying we should not do that. You know, we should not stereotype. And then I also said, you know, and just like, you know, in Ireland, Northern Ireland in the, you know, the seventies and eighties, there were bombings, but we shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't uh, talk about toxicity in Irish culture. Um, and so I was kind of picking on my own ethnic group um, in that situation. And, and it ended up being like this back and forth kerfluffle uh, or whatever. But, you know, some people interpret that, that in the you know, most uncharitable way possible as if kind of like the reverse of what I'd said. What I was saying is that we should not stereotype groups based upon individual behavior. And some people, you know, interpret that as, as if I had said the opposite in, mm. in some way or as mm. some Islamophobic, you know, uh, well, that was, yeah, that was kind of at the height, right. Of, uh, I, I guess Trump's sort of attacks on Muslims and, mm-hmm. and really like, um, yeah, uh, people really trying to, uh, put themselves out as you know defenders of Islam mm-hmm. and um, yeah yeah um, nobody cared about the Irish right, no, right. No, no, nobody nobody uh, right. you know said oh he's Irishophobe uh, or, yeah. or whatever um, but yeah, um, well it was interesting because I think you know there were a couple Muslim individuals who were on the the listserv and at least at least the ones who had wrote in actually said well I, I didn't read anything Islamophobic and what he'd written mm-hmm. it sounded perfectly reasonable what he said in fact you know so it, it was this case of a, it was only a few people. You know, out of this large listserv, again, maybe I'm exaggerating by saying thousands, but it was, certainly was hundreds. Um, so did uh, you get kicked out? Or? No, 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 oh, no. It was, no. It was nothing like, no, no. Like I say, it was, it was not, a, not an actual cancellation, but it was just, I was just surprised by the uncharitability mm-hmm. and the un- lack of generosity and the delusional nature of some of the responses to it. In a sense mm-hmm. of like, that was the 180 degree opposite of what yeah. I just said. Yeah, How could you interpret right. what I said? And, and these are academics, you know, right? And these are academics. Yeah, and these are academics. on Twitter or, or Facebook. So you'd expect, yeah. you'd expect. Yeah. Um, and that is the scary better. part of it. I mean, I guess we sort of talked about it a little bit before starting this podcast, right? Like we talk about a lot of sort of, you know, sensitive issues in a sense, I guess, but, but it's like somebody could just take a clip of something we've said totally out of context, right? That's totally possible. Mm. People can misinterpret all kinds of things to fit a certain narrative. Yeah. Um, well, it's, it's, I mean, but I guess what, you know, it sort of stunned or surprised me a little bit is like, you just had to reread it, you know, I mean, it was there, it was written, you know, so uh, it almost seemed like purposeful misreading of, of you know, what I'd written. And I, and I think that's happens with some of these other examples we see now of, of people on, on, you know, on social media or whatever else that someone gets upset by something and then you actually read what the person had said or, or said, and you kind of go, ah, I, I don't know. I don't, I mean, maybe they were blunter than they should have been or something, but I don't really see that what you think they said is what they said. Uh, you know, yeah. sometimes I think people don't read carefully and mm. they, they think that they, the person said something and they respond to that. Cause I mean, you just have, you know, Twitter, you can just write whatever <laughs> and you don't have to, I mean, you know, even when you when you're giving exams to students, you realize how many of them don't read the questions carefully, right? Yeah. They totally misunderstand what you're, it happens all the time. It's mm. yeah, people. I don't think they like read things carefully, yeah. um, and they I just respond that, Chris, to whatever they I, think. I suspect that what you just said about uh, sometimes you go back and read what the actual the person actually wrote, and then you think oh, that wasn't that bad. I think that is. A peculiar Chris Ferguson reaction. I think more common is that uh, people are hyper partisan, hyper tribal, mm-hmm. and they're primed. Oh, this person said something transphobic. This person said something yeah. racist. This person, and then they will just read it as transphobic, yeah. racist because they've been um, primed, and that's mm-hmm. the confirmation bias that they're now. And that person, like the 
they've already got the anger, the ang- like the yeah. actual text of what the person said, and then they'll just do all sorts of mental gymnastics to say, well, okay, so you didn't say exactly that, but we know what you meant. It was yeah. a dog whistle. <laughs> it was like, you know, this and that, right? So Mind reading, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I just think that the sort of hyper-partisan tribal hatred and polarization like the emotion is prior to all of like all of this right like it's yeah those emotions are just there those people were just on that listserv with all this pent-up like desire to defend muslims against anti-muslim bigots and then like sure. you just you gave them their chance you know and yeah. like and then and once 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 they've done it once they've called you out and they've, they've put you in that category it's very difficult to get back from there right because yeah. now it's now it's like oh well now it's like they've committed to it and they have to be right and they have to make you wrong right. and, and like now you're just sort of not only you're a bigot you're trying to convince them now you're trying, what's the word yeah. uh, now you're trying to gaslight them <laughs> like, yeah. right? like, to, so yeah. it's just very very hard when you have such such heated emotions and you talk about this in your book right like that yeah. like people make bad decisions even whole populations Mm-hmm. when there's heated emotion involved and the ancient greeks did it and we're still doing it like yeah. We, uh, yeah emotion I mean, what happened at the capital right perfect yeah. example yeah yeah making decisions when you're emotional about something you're going to make the wrong decision i mean i think yeah as as an individual now you put a bunch of people together and you guys are social psychologists i mean you know this better than i do and some of those people start making bad decisions and it just looks like the thing to do uh, for everybody else. And there's a diffusion of responsibility, you know, and I think that like the capital six, you know, whatever we're going to call it, ride insurrection, you know, uh, is a prime example of that. It, you know, it's, it's sort of interesting, interesting to think of it as like a coup, right? Because an actual coup happened in Myanmar just a, a few weeks ago as well. And I don't think any of them were dressed up like Buffalo. Um, but, uh, you know, so there's a kind of interesting, you know, comparison, but, um, but yeah, I mean, you know, they're, they're, they're idiots. I mean, you can, you know, it's, I'm not, I'm not trying to downplay what happened. I mean, it must've been terrifying for the people that were in the Capitol, um, and such, but you know, these, I mean, just look at the, these people were, were, were clueless. They're idiots. Their lives are over, you know, and, and you, they, I mean, how did you not know that this was going to be the end for you, you know, in terms of being able to. You know, justifiably, you know, for a lot of people, you know, if you if you say something dumb on Twitter and you get canceled, I'll say that's stupid. But you attack the U.S. Capitol. I mean, I, you, yeah, I, I, I got nothing for you, man. I think you kind of got it. Not only did you attack it, you were taking selfies, you're waiting yeah. to the camera as you're going out, you're, rec- you know, recording it on, you know, Facebook Live. I mean, this is just but I will I will challenge it a little bit because I. I mean, there's work on emotions that says you kind of do need emotions to make decisions, right? It's kind mm-hmm. of essential for decision making. I don't think there's a way to escape, you know, I think we have emotions first and like our system two comes on later, right? It's always yeah. like system one is sort of primary. So I think there's no way to escape it. But I think the goal should be for people to sort of, yeah, wait and sit and think and use those, you know, critical thinking yeah. faculties before just act. like emotion. I mean, even doing good things, right? If you're donating to charity, that's coming out of emotion, right? That's coming out sure. of some compassion, right? So yeah. I think there's a lot of good things that happen from emotional where people make good decisions out of emotions. Um, and I, like I said, I don't think there's a way to escape emotions at all. But I think it's more about trying to get people to think a little bit more before acting. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, especially if it's like, you know, with, with the negative, like anger or, right, right. you know, if you're like super, super agitated, depressed, you know, anxious, 
give it 24 hours, you know, to before you make a decision, you know, based upon whatever it is that you're anxious about or sad about or whatever else, you know, the problem will still be there, um, most likely, and you may have a chance to at least do some, you know, pros and cons analysis of, you know, um, you know, I don't know, you know, my neighbor is, you know, putting wood on my side of the, of the lawn, you know, should I tackle them and, 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 and beat them? You know, this, I'm actually talking about like the, the Rand Paul case, you know, uh, you know, wait, may, maybe, maybe that's not the best response. You know, maybe he might be a dick, but you know, maybe this is a, a you know, um, a bad decision of how to, to, to fix that, the, that issue. Um, but yeah, I mean, we've all had moments and I'm, you know, I've had moments when I'm super agitated too. And it, sometimes it feels like the only thing that's going to like, you know, remove that agitation is to make a decision right now. Um, but unfortunately that decision is oftentimes the worst possible decision. You know, what, what will allow you to blow off steam usually is giving that steam to somebody else who won't be very happy about it. Um, and will likely, you know, look to retaliate in one way or another. So trying to avoid escalating situations is you in most situations is better. Now, I, I want to say occasionally you might have to escalate, but in most situations it's better to try to diffuse the situation than escalate it. And if you do have to escalate, it should be strategic, you know, and again, you should still be thinking and getting advice from others um, about the best thing to do before you just run to a snap uh, emotional decision. I mean, people, people make dumb decisions over positive emotions too, but, you know, uh, but I think when you're agitated in particular, uh, it's more likely. Yeah, I posted something on Twitter a few days ago that was very similar about this. It was like, um, if you and I want to stir up a resentment tomorrow that may rankle across the decades and endure until death, just let, let us indulge in a little stinging criticism. Uh, and this, it was posted by this guy I follow, Rob Henderson. Do you follow him? How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. Oh my God, this is the book. Yeah, my father was trying to get me to read this book all through my teenage years. Uh, but I think it's a quote from some uh, some statesman just making this point that, like, you know, you're angry now. Uh, you know, you're in some debate with some other academic on Twitter. Uh, you, you might have, like, some stinging rebuke. And you might be totally right, right? Uh, but yeah, they could resent you for the next 30, 40 years. Like you could make a, an enemy for life uh, just by being rude to somebody, which is, yeah, something I really need to um, remember. So, but I wanted to also ask, like in the, at the end of the book, despite all this plethora of horrible madmen wreaking <laughs> havoc and destruction all throughout history and a somewhat like, dramatic take on the state of play in the US currently, you still managed to end on kind of an optimistic note. Uh, maybe it was just your editor <laughs> telling you <laughs> you had to, but uh, what, wh how, do you, how do you get to that optimistic place? Um, yeah. Well, I, I do books all wrong. I tell, I end with how things are going to be all right. You really <laughs> should end a book on like, you know, uh, things are, things are going to go into the ditch and the only way to stop that is to buy more of my books. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, no, I mean, first off, if you kind of look at even U.S. history, you know, there is this kind of like weird 50-year cycle that U.S. history goes through that about every 50 to 60 years, we go absolutely insane. Um, and we're about due. This is, a, this is about that time. Um, and then we calm down. 
you know, and things kind of get back to normal. Oh, well, you know, uh, whether that's good or bad, you know, but basically people all kind of calm down and, and, you know, feel a bit more cohesive as a culture again. Um, so that pattern makes me feel better. Um, I will say, um, and I think that there are ways, you know, to get people back on track with being more rational, being more data focused. But you do have to have the sense of like it's not going to happen in the next 12 months, you know. And uh, if you make that decision to keep plugging away at it, to bring data to people's you know, awareness but to do so calmly and rationally and not get into these mud fights, I think you can, you know, not you as not any of us as one individual, but let's say I convince you two to do it. And then you two convince two of your colleagues to do it. You know, eventually that will kind of pick up. And, uh, and these incentive structures do change. You know, you kind of look at like the eighties, it was, you know, it wasn't quite as comparable as today, but there certainly were these like, yeah, we now call them cancellations and, and certainly censorship and authoritarianism from the right. And we still have issues with that on the right, of course, today. But, um, but eventually people just get tired of it, you know, and then you have with like Gen X in the nineties and we didn't mm-hmm. give a crap about anything, you know, um, was, you could call and, McCarthyism cancellation. Oh yeah, that, yeah, well. certainly, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, the yeah, Joseph McCarthy, but you know, so and that was again, that was you know, back in the right about the right on schedule <laughs> for, for the most part, um, yeah. So we do have these kind of waves, and you know, I think you know, if you look at sort of like the data on human progress overall, for, by most industries, this is a Stephen Pinker point, right? Is that you look at like most of how the world is doing, you know, um, take twenty twenty, the worst year probably in my lifetime that I can recall. And find me any year in the 14th century you'd rather live in. Um, and I bet you, you can't do it by any, by whether you're looking at disease levels, violence, economics, you know, equality, um, you know, and that's not to downplay what a crappy year 2020 was, but um, the, the, the direction things are going in is positive and positive for everyone. Uh, not to equal degrees. That's not to say that there isn't inequality, that there aren't like, real problems we need to address. Um, but the, the, the direction, you know, that things are headed in seem to be positive. So I think we're going to have some rough years. Um, I'm optimistic that I don't think we're going to have a full-blown shooting civil war. I think people enjoy their television sets and their, you know, DVD players a little too much uh, for, for that. I mean, I mean, I mean that, maybe that sounds flippant, but I actually think that's true. I mean, I think that people have some degree of recognition that, you know, um, an outright shooting war isn't going to do anybody any good. Um, so, um, you know, so I don't think it's going to get that bad. I think we're going to have a few years, five, maybe ten, of of real polarization. And eventually the people, the sort of, and I, I think it's really we're watching 5% fight another 5%. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then eventually the other 90%, you know, are going to figure out, you know what, Um this guy lives next to me, so I'm actually quite, uh, you know, quite lucky. I think the neighborhood I live in is very diverse, ethnically, religiously, and politically. Um, so, like I said, I'm on, I'm on the left. I'm sort of center left, but I got neighbors that um, are Trump voters because I saw the flags, you know, um, and we get along just fine. You know, I don't think they're evil. They don't think I'm evil, you know, and so I think most people are in that category. You know, I, you know, I live in Orlando, so I don't need to have my driveway plowed, but if someone did, you know, this is the actual op-ed that came out, I think the LA Times this week, but, you know, um, I would be happy (laughs) to let someone who's a Trump voter, you know, plow my driveway, you know, and I think most of us kind of feel that way. Like, 
I might not like who the guy you voted for, and I think maybe you made a mistake, but you know, I sort of get why you voted for him, even if I don't think that was you know. For me, the balance went the other direction. What but, have uh, you talked to them at all about January six? I, I don't know. About, the people I've talked to about, uh, so I, I've stupidly posted a few things on Facebook. I don't know if they were directly related to January 6th, um, but, um, you know, and I think most of the blowback I got there was from the left, you know, it was, and it was, I'm trying to think what I posted recently. Uh, and I didn't think it was, it was, it was a very central, centrist kind of thing. It was sort of, you know, I don't, I, I can't even remember the content, uh, unfortunately, but it was, it was something in the sense of, you know, uh, pro unity. It was something pro unity at any rate. You know that we need to calm down and not like treat people on the right like they're all Nazis. So something, something in that. You know, r- relatively reasonable. You know, and and a few people got upset. I mean, not necessarily at me directly, but they thought that the article I posted was you know uh, out of line. Uh, I mean, you, it, to some extent, you you know you, you don't get into a, an argument with them. You know, you sort of affirm. I, I sort of get where you're coming from. I understand your position, but what, have you thought about this? You know, and then sometimes they're going to go, oh, yeah, right. You know, uh, they sort of, yeah, yeah, but, you know, they do a year, yeah, but is what you get. Um, you kind of, okay, well, you raise a fair point, but have you thought about this? You know, and just kind of keep doing that. You know, you, d- you don't lose your cool. Um, you sort of affirm a little bit about what they said, and you kind of say, well, what about this? <laughs> you know, uh, and you a, get. <laughs> when, there's a, when there's a change.org petition to have you fired from Stetson <laughs> University. <laughs> For tolerance of white supremacy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, w- I won't sign it. I won't sign it, Chris. I, I think a lot of people will. I, yeah. I, well, I it's, it's funny because it's, it's some of these things with, you know, if you, if you bring up like both sides, everybody hates both sides. Both sides hate both sides, I'll say, you know. Um, and uh, if you post anything in the middle, and I've done this, like I actually wrote something for Psychology Today about sort of like the probability, this is back like in the summer, uh, the probability of us electing uh, a, a president who had at least mild cognitive impairment in 2020, uh, mm-hmm. you know, November, uh, based upon the age. And I didn't say either person, Trump or Biden, had any dementia or cognitive impairment. Uh, but I said based upon their age and the proportion of individuals in those age categories, you know, who have mild, at least mild cognitive impairment, right. you know, it tends to be like 50 percent. You know, something of that sense. Uh, and then, you know, I didn't mention either of them as having any actual, yeah, I, I can't die. I have no idea. Um, but uh, but it's funny that I get, like, the people on both sides are like, you're in the bag for Trump. No, or on the other, and the next email I get is, you're in the bag for Biden. And I'm like, oh, you can't win. <laughs> Sometimes, I mean, you know. I thought we were, um, we're old. Uh, doesn't everybody cognitively decline after, like, 30 like, yes. Yeah. So, yes. You know, all right. there, there's a reason why I can't remember names and, uh, <laughs> you know, directions and, and all kinds of other stuff. So, yeah, I, I can tell you firsthand experience, you, there's a noticeable decline. In yeah. Cognitive this is, this is why I need you to, like, organize times with all our guests. And <laughs> when things are happening, yeah. Sure. Invites and stuff. Sure. I think people just use it as a crutch, but yeah. Yeah. But to go back to your question, in my experience, I mean, I have talked to my neighbors about other things, certainly about, you know, I think we kind of try to avoid, like, the, uh, like, uh, obvious triggers or landmines or whatever, but you know you can talk to you know as long as you don't call them Nazis. You know you say like, well, you know I didn't really care for Trump that much. I, I can tell my neighbors that, and they're not gonna like, you know yeah. I don't know yeah, try I to think, yeah, yeah. slash my tires or something. You know. I remember in the '60s there was this peace movement, right? but it was about like let's not invade 
right. Vietnam, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, like peace is a good thing. Peace is. Is there any possibility there could be like an intra-U.S. peace movement that movement? that that could oh. become something that young people get into? I I don't see it right now at all. Like, yeah. I, it seems like impossible. But I had that thought the other day, and I was like, huh. You know, bring back the peace sign, and but it's like, yeah, yeah no, I don't, I don't want to like, you know, totally disavow these these people because they disagree with me on things. Yeah. Yeah. Right. There are a few groups. I mean, there's no labels, you know, which is uh, and I forget what they're. They have an actual caucus of Congress people um, who are both Republican and, and Democrat and the problem solvers. I think that's what they call themselves at the caucus. Um, but there's mm-hmm. no labels, which is kind of devoted to exactly what you're saying is. It's not a like grassroots like flower power kind of thing, uh, so it might not have that appeal. It's, it's mostly middle aged folks who are just tired of everybody screaming at each other. Um, so yeah. it, I don't know if it would appeal to younger people necessarily, but that is basically their their idea is that like everybody on the left and the right needs to stop screaming and actually compromise on stuff. But as you can see, they haven't had, I think, in my opinion, a lot of traction, unfortunately. Mm. Yes, yeah, not a popular position. Actually, just before we go, I wanted to thank you. You uh, were one of the few people willing to speak up about that Al Shebley paper thing. Mm. Um, Yeah. yeah, And like your op-ed, I thought was really good. Academic freedom. I mean, yeah. So this is just one final thing I want to touch on. Um, There does seem to be, well, there's a, there's something going on with academic freedom right now, right? Like there's, and I, I want to get to the bottom of it. I actually want to have conversations with people about it. Um, so recently the students at McGill put out this statement, you know, like everybody was signing onto it, or like it was a big thing. And they were basically saying there needs to be limits to academic freedom to, you know, protect marginalized people. Right. And, mm-hmm. and I, I posted about this and I said, like, my, basically my point was like, to some extent, I agree, right? Like, to some extent, I don't want a Nazi to come and talk on Berkeley campus about, like, the genetic superiority of the white race. Like, like that, yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, I can see that. Like, you... Yeah, I can see how there is some things that are, should be beyond the pale that we should just say no to. Um, but but what my thing is, is, like... I, I just want like clear guidelines like mm. about that right because it's it just seems so um hand wavy and fuzzy the way these things are applied right because that yeah. that kind of thing gets applied to a Charles Negi tweet which is very different mm-hmm. from saying like I think the white race is superior to the the black race like he's saying something that you have to sort of like join all these dots and interpret in the worst possible way to get to like, oh, this guy's Mm -hmm. a racist monster, right? So like, to me, it was like, well, I kind of agree, but like, you're not giving any clear guideline about what speech makes marginalized groups unsafe. So like, what, what is allowed and what's not allowed? And we kind of are in this weird space of, we just sort of rely on these people kind of just saying, well, we know it when we see it right like and it's 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 a it's kind of like a subjective thing of like oh well this person said this and this person now feels unsafe therefore that's the speech that's that's beyond the pale but then like you don't always know what is going to make people have that 
sort of subjective feeling of feeling unsafe, right? So like, I just wanted clarification and I reached out to these student groups that wrote this letter and I said like, hey, would, would you come on the podcast? Would you be willing to talk about this? Like, I'd really love to like sort of unpack what you think the limits to academic freedom should be. You know, no response. I posted it, I posted it on Twitter multiple times, even through yeah. the more of a comment than a question account because I really want somebody to like steel man this position and, and say like, some kind of clear guideline about what you think that limit should be, where you mm. think that limit should be. But it seems like nobody's willing to clarify that. And the uncharitable part of me thinks that, well, that's that's part of the game, right? Because if you yeah. never clarify that, you can just sort of wheel this argument out right. um, and sort of cancel anybody that you don't like or has opinions or uh, yeah. positions that you don't agree with. So I think like... Yeah, we're at this stage where it is really important for us to have this conversation and really clarify, if any, what are the limits to academic freedom? Um, and I don't see anybody really trying to, to unpack that yeah. and clarify that. So I was wondering if you had thoughts on that, because like, it's obviously something you think about as well. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I mean, I, I think part of the issue, too, is, is you know, people are really reluctant to define it right now because it's a moving target. You know, it's also, it's, you know... The, the thing is, you know, what I said was fine 30 minutes ago, but now it's now now I'm getting fired for it. You know, and I think there's a lot of that going on as well. So it keeps being redefined, you know, even in live, you know, even as we're watching, uh, you know, to some extent. But, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, so you get this kind of like any kind of like free speech debate, you know, whether it's academic freedom or free speech in, in society. I mean, you really get two things. One is that, you know. If you're at a private institution or university, it's not really you're not protected by the First Amendment anyway, which is true. But that's not really what free speech is. You know, free speech is a value. It's not the First Amendment. You know, um, so I don't usually find those arguments terribly helpful necessarily. But, um, you know, but there is a sense of, you know, yeah, what are the boundaries? So you get people say, like, well, would you want a pedophile to come to campus and talk about the, you know, advocate for, you know, sex with children? No, of course not. Yes, that's, you know. Um, but that's this concept of the Overton window, right? The same thing applies to Nazis, you know, is this idea that there's a certain window of sort of, you know, views that are mainstream enough that, um, you know, a substantial proportion of the population would find them acceptable at very least. They might not agree with them, but they don't find them beyond the pale. And I think with things like academic freedom or free speech, that the, the sort of concept of the Overton window should be kept as broad as possible. Most of us would agree it's not going to include everything. So, again, like pedophiles, Nazis, you know, uh, slander, libel, you know, uh, incitement to violence. There are always going to be some exceptions to this that most of us will, will agree with. But what happens is with any kind of like culture war debate, each side tries to close the Overton window on the other side, you know, tries to move it in a direction that is acceptable, um, you know, for them. So you get, you know, conservatives will try to convince you that you should, you know, if, you know, back in the seventies and eighties, you should never talk about gay marriage because that's going to hurt, you know, I don't know, whatever it's going to hurt. It's going to hurt families or something like that. Something ridiculous, but, um, you know, and they're trying to make that, that argument unacceptable. You should not, you know, be able to even, you know, of course they didn't win that particular argument, you know, and on the other hand, the left will say, you know, like in the, the abortion debate, you know, you shouldn't be pro-life because that means you're a misogynist, you know. And so they're trying to close that um, that Overton window down, even though, you know, probably half, you know, I don't know what proportion, I don't know, 30 to 50 percent of the population would probably agree with that, you know, position. Um, and so I think what's happening a lot of here is, is yeah, I mean, the, un the unbalancing element of it of like, I don't know what I can say. 
you know, and, uh, you know, and I've, I've had this experience in class because, you know, I teach forensic psychology, which does talk about things like race and policing and, and other sorts of uh, sensitive topics and stuff, you know. Here's a bunch of data. Can, can I talk about it? You know, is uh, is sort of a tough thing to think about. You know, for uh, you know, for for me. I mean, even in the middle of this podcast, I'm thinking like, huh? You know, is is a sentence that's in my head an okay one to put out there? Maybe I've already blown it. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but um, but I think that's the point of a lot of this is to keep people in balance. Is so a lot of you know when this culture war sort of power struggles fear. Is part of the incentive, uh, the uh, incentive structure, right? Is to, is to frighten people into worrying that if they um, challenge something. I think there was at University of Chicago, there was a professor in chemistry who challenged the diversity initiatives of his department or something of that sort. Um, yeah, yeah, and then in, in his case, he fortunately was protected, you know, by his, his president. Um, but there is a sense of you just watch what happens to him. And even if he, in his case, he was protected, but you kind of go, well, huh, at my university, if I'd said something like that, would I get fired? Um, even if I had tenure, you know, for instance, and I don't know. And I got a family. I mean, I do have a family that I got to feed, you know. Um, mm. And um, is it worth it for me? You know, and my, and my wife and I have had these conversations. Like, you know, here's the thing, you know, is it worth it for me to, to you know, and again, I try not to be a grenade thrower as much as possible, but, you know, uh, is it worth talking about, you know, this thing if other people are going to be upset by it and, and may come, come to your head? Um, and for me, it's difficult because I also have this sort of ethic that our whole job is to like bring data to people and challenge people's views of the world if they're not database in, in a respectful way. I think we should do it in a respectful and civil way. But I don't know what I'm doing if I just have to pretend that something is true when I know or or believe at least that it is not. It's interesting whether you're you're so it's you would kind of base it on some percentage, some large enough percentage of the population has to not agree with what you're saying, but also not see it as it's like kind of a consensus thing. It's like a super majority. I don't agree with yeah. it, but I don't see that as fireable. I don't see that as beyond the pale if a large enough percentage and it's like yeah, uh, yeah. So you never really know, but you can make educated judgments about what is and what isn't beyond beyond that. Uh, it won't always work that way, right? Because like the the um, sentiments that are motivating the outrage mobs are not always majority sentiments, no, and I think like the there's a vast sort of 70% in the middle who are very, very scared to even like yeah. <laughs> like the wrong tweet right now, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. And, you know, for good reason. So yeah. I tweet the other week about how one um, professor was saying, she was like, hey, early career researchers, uh, you should really think hard about what you tweet because you never know who's going to see it. And I think she was trying to be nice. She was trying to be <laughs> like, she was trying to give good advice. And I think it is good advice. Yeah. Uh, but it was also just like, oh, God, right? Like, so, you know. Nothing yeah. creepy about that at all. Yeah. <laughs> everybody's already so boring and vanilla and like yeah. unwilling and, to say anything interesting like yeah, this doesn't and help. i just like if you can't speak your mind then what's the point of being that's how i think about it like if i can't yeah. even say what yeah. i think then what am i doing here yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. that's yeah. kind of where i'm at too yeah yeah, yeah. But that's, you know, part of it's the incentive structures for, you know, businesses, academic administration, you know, HR, is that they respond to this 5%, you know, the, the, the loud 5% on either side. You know, I'm not trying to pick on the left here. It's true on the right as well. 
that you get an outrage mob on one side or the other, and uh, these companies think that they're in trouble. They think that if they don't change what they're doing into a, or at least signal in some way or another their allegiance to whatever the crowd wants, that they're going to lose money. And oftentimes, this you know, most people don't care, you know, about that. Or if anything, you know, the the majority of people might think you're worse because you actually caved in. Like the New York Times, their reputation right. is, in, is in tatters, you know, at this yeah. point from four years ago. Uh, it's been remarkable to watch their decline. I'm sure they're doing fine. Funny. I'm not going to say that they're like, you know, impoverished or anything, but, uh, you know, they're certainly their integrity has been, has been uh, smashed mm. to some extent. Did but, recently uh, fired an editor? One of the McNeil, right? I think was yeah. his name. Yeah. Yeah. That, was a, yeah. that was pretty interesting. We could have talked about that, <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> Yeah. The I I just subscribed actually, so that like they're they're getting eight we, bucks a, a month from me now. We get free subscription through our Berkeley. God know. damn it! <laughs> <laughs> but, <laughs> but I guess we should help the press. So yeah. keep keep yeah, yeah. give we? them your eight dollars. Yeah. Nobody ever told me that. Yeah. Well, you have to read email, departmental emails. <laughs> that kind of you know. <laughs> no, you're doing the right thing by deleting them. Yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Never the wrong thing to delete a department email. Okay, okay sure. well, with right. that, I'm going to go cancel my <laughs> New York Times subscription. <laughs> thank you very much, Chris. Uh, it yeah, was, thanks so much for joining us. It's yeah, really been a lot great, of fun. I really appreciate great it. To you. Yeah. All right, have All a great right. weekend, you guys. Take care. All right, take care. Long weekend, Dan. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye.